This is the Negotiate X Podcast, show number 43, part A. You're listening to Negotiate X Radio, helping you elevate your influence through purposeful negotiations. If you're here looking to learn about how to become a better negotiator in both business and life, then you're in the right place. Stay tuned and be sure to join the others who have benefited from NegotiateX.com, your home for negotiations training and consulting online. Hello and welcome to the Negotiate X podcast. I am your co-host and co-founder, Nolan Martin. With me today is my good friend, co-host, co-founder, Aram, and also another important guest. But Aram, how are you doing today, sir? I'm good. How are you, Nolan? I am doing excellent. Do you want to go ahead and kick off this podcast by introducing our guests? Sure. Hi, everyone. Great to see you today. Today, we are joined by Andy Prisco, founder of Jumpstart Mastery, a network of public safety professionals, behavioral health professionals, and private enterprises who all share a common interest in reducing episodes of anger, aggression, and violence through shared training, education, and collaboration. Andy is the founder of the Psychiatric Emergency Response Team, program within the state of Washington's care and services system. The program structure, advanced training, and people are credited with significant reductions in violence, injuries, and the use of seclusion and restraint in state hospitals, forensic psychiatric facilities, and total confinement facilities. Andy is also a fellow with the National Anger Management Association and a co-developer of the only certification available in crisis intervention from a professional mental health association. He is also the author of the Crisis Intervention Certification Handbook, Best Practices for First Responders. Andy has provided de-escalation training and presentations across the United States and Canada to law enforcement professionals, hostage crisis negotiation teams, fire EMS personnel, behavioral health professionals, and psychiatric nurses. In addition to behavioral health credentials, he maintains public safety credentials as a firefighter, an EMT, fire training instructor, a rescue swimmer, rope rescue technician, might have to hear more about that, Andy, and company officer. In 2017, Andy was a nominee for the Hero of the Year Award from the Washington Council of Behavioral Health. He won the prestigious award in 2019. He is the founder of the Omada Arit Thought Group. I probably didn't say that right, did I? It's okay. Uh, Arite. Arite. Yeah. Uh, Arite. Yeah. Team of Virtue. Team of Virtue. Thanks, Andy. Which is a think tank of cross-discipline global experts revisiting values and first principles in care and service programming. Andy, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, it's Almost embarrassed by the length of my bio, but I, I'm seeing all the images over the, you know, the the 20 years that that represents, and I'm realizing as I'm looking at myself in this software, at my gray beard, and yeah, you know, I've, <laughs> there's been a lot of experiences there, and I thank you so much for your willingness to to witness me and my work in this context. I thank you both very much, Nolan and Aram. It's been a long journey, and I've really been kind of not visible uh, to the to the world in any uh, public way until recently. 
And and is that a dog we hear, Andy? No, it, it's my wife it's... crashing around. You know, so, <laughs> <laughs> so I apologize, guys. No, yeah, no, nope, that's, that's fine. And you can cut that. Out. No, I got two dogs here with me, so and I, I got three I'm with always, me. So, so I, I'm always aware of the the noise that they make. So yeah. <laughs> All right, Andy. Well, let's talk about your professional journey. How did you get to this point? You know, what really brought you into the um, negotiation space or de-escalation space? I don't know how you want us to refer to it, but but definitely excited to hear about the journey of of you getting to where you're at today. You know, I think our formative experiences carve and shape the overall orientation of where we find ourselves as human beings flourishing whenever we do flourish. And we look back and recognize that these things that we went through were so material to what we're doing today. And I would imagine you gentlemen could think of formative experiences in your development that set the stage for you to be doing the work you're doing. For me, and many people who work in the behavioral health space, people who work, I think, in any space where their mission and purpose is from some place of selflessness to reduce suffering elsewhere. I had my own kind of suffering I had to live through and work through as a young boy and in my family system. And without taking too much time and getting into too much detail, I think the jury is back on that now. And I think that nearly everybody that we encounter can recognize the formative experiences when in your family system there is potentially alcoholism, drug use, other forms of influences in the family system that can influence the presentation of a family member or someone else in a way where we might, as human beings growing up, feel unsafe. We might feel particularly you know, acutely attentive to the environment and sometimes on occasion have to adjust our own behavior so that other people in the environment uh, are manageable. You know, we, we grow up very often uh, in settings where people's emotional state can be regulated by who we are in the moment. And if things for them aren't just right, they can explode. So I grew up with a high sensitivity to the emotional arousal of others. I'd say, so that I could get through a day, you know, without without a problem. And the work I have done in my adult career has been heavily influenced by that sensitivity. My formative experiences in observing someone else's distress and acting and conducting myself in a way so as not to make that worse, and if anything, try to make that better. I think that's what set the stage and my fascination with psychology, which could probably be credited to a number of things, is what led me to a long, struggling undergraduate career of driving a truck and going to school at night and taking an extraordinary amount of time just to get my undergraduate degree <laughs> and then beginning the process of working in a care and services system, which began in uh, believe it or not, uh, Patterson, New Jersey, a very urban setting where I was working in what's known as a psychosocial rehabilitation model. It was a, my, so my introduction into care and services was a model of care 
where there were no staff-only areas, no staff-only bathrooms, no staff-only break rooms, no staff-only offices. There was only one area that was off-limits to people served, and that was the medical records room. But that kind of uh, place of equity, if you will, in the delivery of care and services was my initial exposure to the work, and, and from then on, I was hooked. That's great. Thank you for sharing. And that was in the late 90s. Yeah. Did that help lead to, I'd love to know more about the psychiatric emergency response team program that you, that you created in Washington. So did, how, did that, how did that experience kind of lead to your creation of, of the uh, team? Yeah. So that experience of being in an environment, particularly where the, the therapeutic structure was one of shared space and uh, shared relationship you know, those environments for all the people who work in them require those people when someone presents some kind of discontrol or dysregulation, you know, care environments don't have use of force policies. We don't use that word in psychiatric care and services. So anyone who presents aggressive and even violent behavior, property destruction or assaultive behavior, until the threat itself becomes imminent until the fist is cocked, until the chair is proffered over the head, until the golf pencil is in their hand and they want to jam you with it. Words are the requirement. Uh, there is no preemptive seclusion or restraint. There is no preemptive manual restraint. There's words until the presentation of imminent risk and even under imminent risk conditions, the spirit and the expectations of the regulations in our world is that we're going to the last moment hmm. to give someone an opportunity to engage a capacity for self-control. The psychiatric emergency response team in our state was largely inspired after an event in which I was involved, was the single largest joint metro SWAT response to a psychiatric facility in our state, where in short, patient in the forensic care area of the facility, and I'll leave it nameless, uh, attempted to start a fire, successfully started the fire in a lock treatment unit, resulted in evacuation and disruption of daily operations. We had to move this person to a different secure area. The person monitoring the person served in this new area actually fell asleep. That person served, plucked the magnetic key card off the sleeping monitor, moved through two electromagnetic secured doors to a non-patient care area, barricaded themselves with a, a knife taped to a crutch from a break room, and then bleach and ammonia and cleaning chemicals at the door and fire load and his intention was to start another fire and defend himself and with you know from anyone trying to stop him. Wow. And without getting too deep into the weeds, in collaboration with the wonderful crisis negotiation personnel from the Joint Metro SWAT unit, I was able to move into position with armed and armored personnel. And while a tactical response was being conceived and produced through the use of words and meaningful de-escalation programmatically that we had developed at the facility, we were able to get the person to cooperate with uh, with staff and surrender. Uh, and they've since gone through the legal process and, and gone to prison. This was in a, a state psychiatric facility. 
But nonetheless, the the demonstration to the hospital at that time was there's nothing worse in a in a care and services setting for there to be 25 armed people and vehicles outside and very, very disruptive to the clinical environment. If there was a way that that could be prevented, the hospital and the stakeholders in it had, upon seeing the conclusion of this event, entrusted me with the responsibility of developing a program to make sure that that never happens again. And that was the basis, that was the the formative experience of the team. And the team has since programmatically gone on to be the embodiment of words-only response to high-risk emergency. And this doesn't mean careless response where they're putting themselves in inappropriate risk, but in a psychiatric care and services setting, what the data is in and the jury is back that we have had our hands on the same people over and over again, secluding and restraining them, and we now know that that doesn't modify behavior. It may acquire safety in the moment, but it doesn't modify behavior. It doesn't influence. In fact, it very often just makes things worse. So we had to have to meet the the challenge of the presentation of high-risk behavior differently if we want to change the outcome and reduce the likelihood of future emergency. That's what the psychiatric emergency response team was all about. What a pretty powerful story. I kind of want to use that story as we kind of continue our discussion. And that's obviously very intense situation, very tense situation for you as well. What kind of skills were you able to use to de-escalate that situation? In our work, we have a need in reducing violence to engage in the, the big distinction between, I think, crisis negotiation, crisis de-escalation, and let's say commercial negotiations. I've had some time to think about this over the years because the skills we use are the same. There's some, some objectives, different objectives that we have, and there are different ways in which we can sequence and stack the skills based on the objective. Here's what I mean. In the commercial negotiation space, we hear terms all the time like active listening or minimal encouragers, or you guys have had Gary Nesner on, you know, like these terms, Gary is so articulate at describing the formative years of the crisis negotiation program and how they collaborated with counseling psychology to develop curriculum. And in the course of curriculum development, when they went to the psychology world, and they went to these Rogerian concepts. Carl Rogers is the founder of these terms in the late 1950s. These things that we use, paralanguage, mirroring, reflection statements, active listening, which is listening to confer the clear understanding to the person making disclosure that everything that they're communicating is seen, heard, and understood, and how do we leverage that? That occurs in commercial negotiations every day. In our space, we use some of the same and different terms to describe that phenomena. The use of validation statements, listening and observing, accurately reflecting what has been stated, articulating the unverbalized, validating in terms of history, validating in terms of circumstances. So what do we do in those high-stakes situations that's really different? Not much, but here's our objective. I think the world in which you 
gentlemen provide such meaningful education and value is by assisting people in these chess games across the boardroom table where everybody, largely speaking, is in a self-regulated state. So their capacity for diversity of thought and diversity of expression in the higher cortical regions of the brain is very wide. You're not in an environment where someone is about to bludgeon you with some AA batteries in a sock, right? Everyone's trying to leverage to get to an objective. We have an objective too, but it's compressed in the time frame to something far more brief. The objective is not to solve the problem that the person in crisis claims is responsible for their dilemma. Our responsibility and objective, categorically, is to help someone engage a capacity for self-regulation right now so that they have the freedom and the liberty to solve their problem later. Well, what do I mean specifically by that? Let's say someone in an acute care admissions environment is completely in discontrol, engaged in the common area in the use of racial slurs, uh, inciting potential group violence in the environment, and someone says, you got to bring that to a stop right now. Okay, so what's pretty clear? We have a we have a circumstances a circumstantial objective. We have to get this to stop, but we have rules in place that regulate how we go about doing that. So now I have to get this person to want to stop. I'm not going to be able to stop them. I can't muzzle them. I can't tackle them. I can't drag them away like with a big hook like we used to see in the cartoons as kids when someone would pull you off the screen. I can't do any of those things. I have to get this person to want to stop, and I have to figure out how to do that. We follow a very sequential approach to the use of validation, identifying as quickly as possible a way that this person and me can engage in a shared appreciation of a rule, value, law, and then I'm going to suggest or propose a course of action and describe how it better serves them right now. So even if I have to provide a description of an undesirable outcome, if I have to say, hey, look, if this continues, if this course of behavior continues, the likelihood here is that you could be escorted against your will by a number of people to a a place of isolation or segregation. But if you engage in more safe, appropriate language right now, you'll have an opportunity to stay. We attempt to, no pun intended, jumpstart the evolved brain because unlike the boardroom or the conference table, this person is in a state of uh, very high limbic activation. So diversity of thought and expression is not there as compared to someone who is self-regulated. So I have to help stimulate that function by giving opportunities to stop and think that are reasonable. If they could have solved their own problem, I never would have been there. Is it overly simplistic, Andy, to talk about that in terms of the activity that's occurring in a prefrontal cortex versus the amygdala hijacking sort of activity? I mean, is that... Is that is that is oversimplistic way to think about what's happening from a kind of limbic stimulation perspective? Do you mean, or or is that accurate, or is there accuracy to that kind of where they're at? They're being hijacked. They're, there's not a lot of occurring prefrontal lobe activity. I would say that 
whether it's people like Chris Voss or or Stephen Porges from Polyvagal Theory or Becker, uh, excuse me, the the Body Keeps the Score, um, the author, the pronunciation of the author's name escapes me at the moment. I think the jury is back now, and that when we're having just general non-academic conversations about the presentation of anger, aggression, and violence. Rather than an oversimplification, I will say that I think it's reasonable to, in a general way, describe anger and aggression upon presentation reliably demonstrates neurophysiologically that there is high activation in the brainstem and that when people are engaged in safer states with greater diversity of thought and expression, activity is far more measurable in the higher cortical areas. So I don't mean to oversimplify, but I do mean to make general that there are some principles now that we know are reliable. When you're pissed off, you don't have as wide of diversity of thought and expression as you do when you're in a safe state. And and those are automatic functions. I'm I'm curious and the 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 extension then to you know, do do you see maybe to a lesser scale than some of those emotional reactions uh, occurring even in even in a boardroom sort of setting? <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> and so, so these skills have some other application. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, precisely. I mean, how often I, I've been humiliated in the conference room. Uh, I remember being in a meeting where I was terribly triggered and there were labor representatives there. I was defending my program because strangely, when uh, when a new phenomena shows up in a complex bureaucratic system and suddenly starts producing excellent outcomes, not everybody is thrilled with it. So um, <laughs> we don't know what you're talking about. We haven't spent careers in the, the military. No bureaucracy there, right? Yeah, so. right. Oh, like, yeah, they got the mission done easy. <laughs> well, what do you mean? You know, so, yeah, so I, I remember feeling absolutely triggered and prone to discontrol. And consequently, when that happens, I remember the physical experience myself of finding it hard to articulate complex ideas. I'm feeling shame and insecure because I'm in a room with a bunch of psychiatrists and nurses who all look down their nose at, you know, some kid from the New York metropolitan area who eats pizza and only has his undergraduate degree that he's getting in between someone's clinical judgment and someone with a cup of urine and trying to prevent that that person is unnecessarily tackled. So having to defend myself in that environment, uh, that that was a very formative. And I remember my CEO, who I loved and still do, he watched, he let me squirm. He wanted that to be a learning experience for me. And he didn't defend me. And I remember just feeling trammeled. He was from Elizabeth, New Jersey, by the way. <laughs> I, I just want to point that out. Um, anyway. Uh, he knew you could handle it as a, as a, good, a good New Yorker. Yeah. And, and, as, and as someone who he was interested in seeing move up uh, and become a, a more mature administrator, manager, supervisor, man someone who was interested in my well-being, saw the learning opportunity for me to get my ass handed to me in this meeting. So, uh, (laughs) yes, I would say that I think that the commercial negotiators enjoy collaboration with the people who have experience in these 
let's say, less ornate, complex negotiations that can occur in the commercial setting. But still, in that environment, there are, in, in some cases, strategically, people trying to trigger one another to create an experience of discontrol so that something could potentially be leveraged in a commercial negotiation and trying to capitalize on speed to get people to not think through options so that they execute commitments that maybe they shouldn't. So yeah, we gentlemen, we have an opportunity to engage in so much shared learning opportunity with with one another because there are so many the methods are the same. The neuroscience is the same. The environments in which these play out, uh, the, there's great learning that can occur from our, our shared spaces on this subject matter. Yeah. And I liked how you said that, you know, the stack and sequence of the skills may be different because, because the objectives that you're trying to achieve are different. I think that's something, as I've talked to FBI hostage uh, colleagues, right, that's, that's something that, that, that certainly comes to light. Yeah, we have to. We have an agenda in in crisis de-escalation, and the agenda is to assist this person engage a capacity of self-regulation right now. And the reason that we have the agenda and we propose choices and describe how it served them, because we recognize that their ability to conceptualize their own solution is offline or diminished right now. And I'm generally there because I have to prevent something bad from happening. Someone getting beaten up or worse, property being destroyed or worse, a riot occurring. I I have to get in there and stop something bad from happening. And in order for me to do that, my agenda is pretty simple. So we're trying to influence. So for instance, what, uh, practically speaking, what does that mean? In a crisis negotiation, We don't ask open-ended questions to a great degree because open-ended questions that are too complex when someone's capacity for diversity of thought and expression is diminished or offline is only going to piss them off. So like the whole idea, well, what do you think would be the way that we solve the situation? If I acted in character right now, I can tell you what I have been met with when asking that kind of question, as opposed to saying, hey, look, it's apparent. It's totally clear that you're pissed off and you want to take everyone's head off. We get it, right? Safety here is fundamentally important to everyone. If you can use your words to tell me what it is that you're upset about, maybe we can try. I will move heaven and earth to try to make your problem go away. In other words, that's it. I'm not saying explain to me the ornate nature of what you're going through and educate me as to the circumstances. I'm saying, use your words and tell me what's going on. Like I'm, I'm keeping it real simple. And then as the person demonstrates that they might be online a little more than my appraisal, I might start floating some open-ended questions. Well, tell me, tell me a little bit more about that. What is it that you do want out of this situation? And if I get someone doing that and they're answering successfully, I got them because I want them to move through their evolved brain anyway. This place where they have greater diversity of thought and expression and their uh, fight-flight mobilization state is diminishing. That's what I'm after. That's my goal. So it's not to solve the problem that they said is making them responsible to go into crisis. My problem is getting solved right now. Now I'm getting this person to calm down. 
That's the objective. So with the psychiatric emergency response team, obviously when these emergencies pop up, there's not much time to prepare. So what do you do to teach the response team on what they need to hastily do in order to get in there and be effective? In our context, we're interested in aggression type. So uh, remember, in a care and services setting, we have this high noble calling after someone wants to fight to maintain relationship. Someone takes a swing at us, we don't not see them again or move them down the continuum to some other uh, security environment and we don't see them anymore. We're going to see them in an hour. Right. And maybe in the TV room or out on the yard. Like So the whole idea of, of forming relationship in between crisis events can be very useful in developing goodwill accounts with human beings. So if we're responding to a crisis and we have the benefit of knowing the person, the appraisal that I'm going to suggest that we do first is easy. When we don't know the person, it's great to get some kind of intel from a reporting party before we make contact, and I'll, I'll tell you why. We look at aggression in psychiatric emergency response in three ways. It's either reactive or impulsive, which is generally what the three of us in this conversation encounter most frequently every day anyway. This happens mm-hmm. at the pizzeria, the Verizon store, the office. The home. <laughs> yeah, the home. Something is okay until something occurs and it's not okay. There's deviation. Right. And that's very common. Instrumental aggression is very calculated, premeditated aggression that's organized to twist environment for someone to get their needs met. It's very triggering to others, especially when it's apparent. And, you know, the the fact is, is that what we know from the research now is that instrumental aggression is a product of learned behavior and very often deep early trauma and ambivalent attachment problems growing up in the world. So the world is engaged in a very destructive, maladaptive way for someone to get their needs met. So they say and do extreme things like, hey, you know what's going to happen when I don't get my snack at two o'clock. You know what these things can do. So (laughs) you better make sure that this is here or someone will stand up on a table with a 44-gallon bag tied in a half knot around their neck. And they're really not choking themselves out, but they're getting the entire environment to respond to them or they're, they're engaging in cutting, or they're really not trying to get down to an artery, but they're doing this kind of behavior to manipulate you. That kind of aggression is responded to strategically differently than instrumental. And psychotic aggression, or uh, aggression that's biologically anchored due to substances, that offers another strategy. So when we're responding to these events, we're interested in knowing, first of all, what category, this is like scene size up, Scene size up in active shooters, scene size up in fire service. What what the hell are we dealing with here? So we identify the aggression type so it, try, it, 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 it informs a strategy. That's kind of the first thing we're doing, Nolan. And this happens in seconds. This happens in terms of observation or interaction with the nurse uh, or, you know, point of contact upon arrival at the scene. Give me a quick overview. What am I dealing with here? Well, Joe is inside the office, Max, busting up every printer with a bat. 
Okay, tell me about Joe. He's an employee. Okay. We never had a problem with Joe until he got uh, divorced a month ago. He's been coming in with alcohol on his breath. Okay, so now I'm getting the story real quick before I go to work on Joe that this is probably, you know, reactive aggression, maybe sprinkled with a little poly substance if he was drunk in the morning. His solution uh, strategically is probably going to be anchored somewhere in the emotional triggered states where he feels out of control or feels shame or is engaged in some kind of self-loathing, which means I'm going to treat him with extraordinary respect. And my objective is to get him to put the bat down and come out of the store with me and we can go someplace more appropriate. And I'm figuring that out in seconds. And this can be done by anybody. This is not like, you know, you got to be some high credentialed academic thinker because I'm not that. And the people I work with who do this are not that. So how do you train that though? Because I, th- I would think in the moment, one, I would just to, to be so, you know, taking all this in to be very observational and then not to react and even become judgmental in the moment. I mean, how do you, how do you, beautiful observation. You're right. Uh, how do you train it? You train it by competency exercises that simulate these conditions in the training environment, which means that we engage not only in a presentation of the sequencing of the academic material in a way that we want people to carry it out in the environment, the work environment, we engage in scenario-based training where people uh, following the academic experience move through measured, basic to more complex exercises to inculcate the sequencing. So in the fire service, and, and if I'm not mistaken, you folks were, you gentlemen were in our armed services for many years, so you'll relate to this. In the fire service, we have six rescue knots. And very often when people come to the fire service, they don't know how to tie any of them. So we start in the classroom with a piece of string and a diagram, and, and someone ties the figure eight on a bike, the bowling, uh, uh you know, the uh, uh, figure eight follow through bend and they're mm-hmm. following a diagram and someone's coming around and looking at the knot. Okay. Um, pull the standing part of the line back a little bit, take the running end, move it this way. Okay. That's the knot. Now try that again. I'll be back in a minute to check it. And in a short period of time, people with the string and the diagram are tying the knots in the classroom. Then we go out in the truck bay, we give them a larger piece of 11 millimeter line, give them a pair of gloves and a helmet with a face shield, tie the knot this way. Okay, now we're going to ask you to put your bunker gear on, take your hood, turn it around so you can't see as if you're in a no-vis environment, do the knot that way. Now let's go outside to the fire ground. I want you to put that chainsaw on that line and get it up to the second floor. And all of this occurs in a day and a half. We're not talking about you know, uh, nine months of graduate education to get this done. This is a day and a half of immersion experience in progressively more complex learning exercises to inculcate certain sequences. So in psychiatric emergency response, we're interested in sequential thinking and sequential action. What's a core reason for that? We want to bring structure and order to the chaos that someone is experiencing. Chaos, lack of order. So um, I'm happy to say that very often the outcome is generally one of two things. It's either 
deep collaboration with the method uh, during their crisis where trust has been engendered, reduction of the likelihood of future emergency has been engendered, or someone's cooperating and they're highly irritable about it, but here's what it's not. It's not rolling around on the ground. It's not anchoring someone to a bed with wristlets, hobbles, and a waist belt. It's not throwing Haldol, Benadryl, and Ativan into someone to get them to stop moving. It's not those things. So what it is is someone having a formative experience of potentially engaging other human beings in a way that they previously don't have a lot of experience doing. And and in that way, it's very noble because very often people who present that kind of behavior are not met with that kind of method. They're met, Aram, exactly with what you just described. People get pissed off. They don't want to deal with it. They get triggered. They get angry. You use a racial slur, I'm triggered. And um, I, I'm not the guy to de-escalate you because all I want to do is, is be punitive, which is an indication that your limbic system is active anyway. So right. you're right. You're not the right person to be in there. You know what I mean? Hey, everyone, Nolan here. I'm going to have to jump in and end the show right here. Sorry about that. But if you haven't already, you can go over to wherever you listen to your podcast and rate, review, and subscribe to the Negotiate X podcast. It's, uh, it would mean a lot for, from Aaron and Aram and I to continue getting this podcast, helping it grow and get into the hands of other leaders. So we'd greatly appreciate that if you could do that. Um, and make sure that you join us next week as we continue Part B of this interview with Andy. Thank you for listening to Negotiate X Radio, helping you elevate your influence through purposeful negotiations. If you're here looking to learn about how to become a better negotiator in both business and life, then you're in the right place. Be sure to join the others who have benefited from NegotiateX.com, your home for negotiations training and consulting online.